Good morning. It's good to see you guys. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Ross. It's uh, wonderful wife Heather, Max, Leona. There, two of our children. Other two are out of the home, so our family has shrunk quite a bit. But if we haven't met you, it's because we come to church late 90% of the time, uh, and so, or that's how you know us as the people who walk in late. So. Yeah, it's uh, good to be here. Um, today, let's just jump right in. We're looking at a big chunk of text here, and I don't want to waste any time. So today I want to look at a critical moment uh, in the life of a man named Stephen. Stephen was a leader in the early church, which we find a record of in the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with the Bible. The, the book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, both written by Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so, like Jesus, we see Stephen do signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, Stephen challenges the religious leadership of his day, and like Jesus, Stephen dies at their hands. But Stephen's story is about so much more than his death. It's about how God advances the story of the gospel through a life well lived. Few of us would choose death by stoning, and I don't think Stephen Stephen was really excited about it either. But it's a life well lived. And I hope to show us, that by the end of this sermon, through the power of God's word, what success looks like. So turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to go all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And again, that's a big chunk. We're just going to do an overview. That's like 60 some odd verses. We'll stop in a few places. But let me just give you sort of the big picture of what's happening. Stephen is confronted and accused of speaking against the law and the temple, just as Jesus was. And then in chapter 7, he responds with a lesson about Israel's history. And what began as a public interrogation of Stephen ended in mob violence. They drag him outside of the city and they stone him. And what this does is it sparks widespread persecution of the church, scattering them out of Jerusalem. And the one behind it all is a gifted, well-educated young leader named Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, but who's really behind it all is God. And God has plans that we sometimes do not understand, that do not make sense to us. But the main point that I want to make today, what I want you to walk away with, is that in order to flourish as a disciple of Jesus, and I'm assuming that if you are a Christian, that you would like to flourish, you'd like to be close to him, you would like to grow, 
You would like your heart for him to be bigger. You would like more joy in your life, right? We want that. In order to flourish as a disciple of Jesus, we must follow Jesus where he leads. Typically, we say, no, if we're going to follow Jesus wherever he leads, we have to flourish as disciples first. No, no, no. It's in order to flourish, we follow him. We follow him into, first, lifestyles that rely on his power, and we'll see the beginning of Stephen's interaction with his uh, accusers at the end of chapter 6. But then we follow him into opportunities to contend for his grace. And that's going to be in two ways. Contend for his grace in a world that doesn't get it, but also to our own hearts that don't get his grace very well either. And then finally, into circumstances that require us to see him clearly. If you want to flourish as a disciple of Jesus, you must follow him into places that require us to see him as he actually is. To blow up our small Jesuses and, be rep- and replace them with the truth that he is glorious and he is beautiful and he is worthy of following and living for. So my hope for today is simply that we would walk away dissatisfied kind of dissatisfied with, with, a, with a Christianity that just sort of makes us okay with God, you know, it kind of gets us off the hook, that we would be dissatisfied with an uninspired uh, vision of Jesus. That, that we would, isn't it really easy, I mean, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've heard about Stephen, And probably the first thing that you say is, well, Stephen's the first Christian martyr. And then that's it. You don't look at Stephen's life and say, that's where, that's how I call, I call that success. You're like, that's varsity level Christianity that, that's for him. You know, Corey Ten Boom uh, wrote The Hiding Place. Like, she, she's like, "We, we could never be like her. But when you read The Hiding Place, and again, if you haven't read it, please read The Hiding Place. When you're reading The Hiding Place, you're not, you're not intimidated by her level of faithfulness. You're inspired by it because you want a vision of God that she has. And I want Stephen's vision of God for my life. And I want that for you. Because you know what? It is a desire for a safe Jesus who, who never asks anything of us that actually keeps us from flourishing. That keeps us from growing. Because ironically, it is Stephen who dies by stoning, who is really living. While everybody else around him, his enemies especially, enjoy power, enjoy all of these things. Stephen is living well, even though he dies. Title of the sermon, as you're trying to remember what in the world the pastor talked about over lunch, wherever he leads. You can remember that, right? Three words. I can. Wherever he leads. So let's look at the first point. We must follow Jesus into lifestyles that rely on his power. Look at the three verses here in this first section. Verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen was full of grace. You would have loved to be around Stephen. To say that he was full of grace, to say that he was Christ-like. Like, you think Jesus wasn't awesome to be around? Sometimes a little bit like, hey, dude, you're really exposing my fake self-righteousness right now, so you need to just kind of chill out. But his gentleness and his lowliness and his heart towards broken people, that if you would just get to a place of understanding that you yourself are one of those broken people, you would truly enjoy him. And I think you would truly enjoy Stephen. But his ministry was also marked by supernatural power, right? God did things through him. People's lives changed as a result. If you were around Stephen, you would have had a a bigger picture of God. Your, Your faith would have grown because you would have seen amazing things. And he answered his objectors with skillful wisdom and, and again, spiritual effect. Like God was at work. This is a picture of an ordinary dude, Stephen. Not, Stephen wasn't a veteran Christian. Nobody was a veteran Christian at that time. You realize that, right? They're all about year-old Christians. And so this is something that God, it's a picture of what God can do in someone's life. And his face was like the face of an angel. He was at peace. At peace in the midst of a very contentious and intimidating situation. It's important to understand this. Stephen's not some super spiritual varsity Christian. Grace, power, wisdom, peace, they weren't natural to him. They were a work of the Holy Spirit and a heart that had been captured by God's amazing love. And that same work can happen in us as we step out and follow Jesus. Because when you do that, you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn just how much, like, unlike Jesus, you really are. Following Jesus wherever he leads is going to put you on the front lines of a broken world. Amen? Everyone thinks they're gracious until they meet someone that annoys them. Seinfeld has his Newman, right? You have uh, that person or the kind of person that exposes your lack of grace. Amen? Amen? Everyone thinks they have the power to change a person. Anyone here ever been married? One of the hardest lessons my wife has had to learn. She's powerless. Everyone thinks they're wise until they have to deal with the complexities of real people problems, of emotions, of brokenness, of abuse, of sadness of, I mean, again, the front lines, if you really want to follow Jesus, you're going to get in the weeds with people. And everyone thought that they were peaceful people 
with the face of an angel until 2020 hit, right? And then haywire, so many different levels. And if you're the one who's like, well, I'm, everybody else was that way, I'm fine. Well, you've got a different issue. <laughs> but instead of pulling back because we're not like Stephen, you know, it, pulling away from the difficulty of it and sort of retreating into a life of self-absorption and, and self-centeredness and just kind of thinking about, you know, I'm going to just, Jesus is enough to, Jesus got me to heaven, that's it, and I'm going to, I'm not going to really engage him. I'm not going to really seek out a life of, of deeper, know, of knowing him more deeply, understanding his love, of following him, of making a difference for his kingdom. We sort of just shrink back and we're satisfied with, as C.S. Lewis says, we're satisfied with making mud pies over here when there's a carnival way over here. We don't want to go there. We just want to go here. Our, we desire so, our desires are so small. For, for what God has for us. But instead of pulling back into that, I, I, I want to encourage you as your starting point to take refuge in the gospel. The gospel offers safety to you. Like as you hear this and you're like, yeah, you know, you're right. I am ungracious. I am powerless. I don't have wisdom. I don't have peace. It, it, admit, or, or how many, how about this? Don't raise your hands. Say, yeah, and you just sort of feel bad about yourself. But that's your starting point. Like, Jesus encourages you to come with that level of honesty and simply say, hey, Jesus, I'm not gracious. I'm kind of judgmental. Jesus, I'm not powerful. I can't change anybody. Jesus, I'm not wise. Sometimes I'm quite the fool, in fact. But I am yours. And that is my foundation. And I'm resting on that. And you are all of these things. And so I'm going to take steps to follow you. Will you meet me there? Will you fill me? Will you help me? Friends, God is, is looking for humble hearts, not varsity Christians. He's looking for people who need him to show up. And friends, when, when that starts, that is, that is Stephen's template. That is Stephen's starting point. It's a Jesus who is real. Not a theoretical Jesus. But he is bought in because he has met him, and so have you. And he's alive right now. And he is here to help us follow him. So let that be our starting point. As you wake up in the morning and see the things that Jesus wants you to do, and you're like, oh, gosh, I can't, I don't, I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to love this person. I don't want to, instead of seeing that as something that you just need to kind of figure out how not to be true of you by your own strength, you just go to Jesus and say, I don't like people, but you do. Can you help me? What if that was your starting point? Look, there's no ceiling to what God can do in your life and through your life. Next point. 
We must follow Jesus into opportunities to contend for his grace. So the, the gospel that Stephen starts with is the gospel that Stephen contends for right here. So let's look at the background, verse 13 and 14. Stephen's accusers say this about him. Here's what they're upset about. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple where they are, and the law, the law of God. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So here's what they're accusing of. Stephen, like Jesus, is speaking against the temple and he's speaking against the law of God. Stephen doesn't believe that God can be found in the temple, and Stephen doesn't think that the law of God is important. What they believed was that the presence of God was only in the Jerusalem temple. This is important. They believed that the presence of God was only to be found there, and everything had to go through right there. Stephen was teaching that God could be accessed by another temple. Jesus Christ. They believe, what is a temple? A temple is the place where God and man meet, right? All religions have them. God gave Israel a temple, and Jesus is the new temple, a better temple, a greater temple where people can access him. It's not limited to a physical space. And they also believe that Jesus was a lawbreaker. You look at some of his interactions with the Pharisees, like on the Sabbath day, when his, he's, they're just looking for ways to bust him because he doesn't follow certain traditions. He's like, that's not the law. That's traditions that you made up. But they don't think he cares about it. And Stephen's response, we'll look at in brief, is that God's relationship to people was never tied to a single location like the temple. Never was. And the Jewish people, like all people, have always rejected God's prophets, including Jesus. And so what he's going to do is he's going to go through four uh, periods of Israel's history, all of chapter 7. It's a massive chunk of text, but it divides up nicely. What he's doing is he's teaching them about their own history. And he's looking at these four periods, the period of Abraham, period of Joseph, the period of Moses, and then the period of the temple. So let's take these two accusations, the accusation of the temple and the accusation of the law that he's speaking against both. Let's take them each in hand and we'll walk through. So first, Stephen addresses the temple. His first response we see in Acts 7 verses 2 through 8. I won't read the whole thing. That God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. So God must be accessed through the temple here in Jerusalem. Okay, well, what about God being with Abraham in Mesopotamia? I don't know if you know if your geography very well, but Mesopotamia in Israel is not. It's far away. Verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. God met him there. The second response was about Joseph. Acts nine, uh, 7, 9, and 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So he's referring to the, 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 uh, in Genesis chapter 47. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. In Egypt, 
Last time I checked, Egypt is not in Israel or Jerusalem. His third response was to say that God was with Moses. These are the, their heavy hitters. These are the ones that they look to. They're the, the, the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They've got examples of those guys too. Moses was their lawgiver. He was with Moses in Egypt in the wilderness. At this time, in verse 20, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. God was with him to see that he was beautiful. He was there. He was present. His presence made him beautiful. And uh, look at verse 33, the burning bush. Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. If it's holy ground, God is there. And then finally, his fourth response. God was not confined to the temple when he gave it to them finally. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. See, David wanted to build a temple. Like, he's their ideal king. He wanted to build a temple for God. God's like, nope. I don't dwell in houses made with hands. If I'm going to give you a temple, I'm going to have my own designs for it. Now, what about speaking against the law? And I'll tie all this together. It's okay if you're not keeping up totally. It's fine. What about speaking against the law? Well, Moses says, well, let's talk about the law. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Just after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, the first thing they do is commit idolatry. They're like, we don't know what happened to Moses. And we're not familiar with this God that he's talking about. But we are familiar with Egyptian gods. And so we're going to make a God that looks like that. And they do. Abraham stubbornly didn't listen to God. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Moses was rejected by the Israelites time and time again. And if they had learned anything from their history, it should have been that they were far from righteous. Pride should have been the furthest thing from them. God had told them. He'd given oracles about himself. They wrote the word of God. They're prophets. They should have understood that they themselves were not righteous. But they didn't. And Stephen's application, and this is where he gets out the big stick. If the temple is required to know God, your assertion, then the father of the nation... Abraham, the giver of God's law, uh, Moses, and the greatest king of Israel, David, none of them knew God. Because they had experienced God outside of the temple. And if obedience to the law is required to know God, well, none of them knew God either. They accused Stephen of speaking against the temple and the law, yet they had confined God to a building and had broken the law themselves. 
And in verse 51, I'll narrate. It's not, there's not a slide for this. Stephen puts a little chili on it. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen wasn't speaking against the law and the temple. They're both from God. But what he was implying is that God can be accessed more fully and freely through Jesus Christ because he is the greater temple. They said no one came to God through the temple. Jesus said no one comes to the Father but through me. Excuse me? You're seeing the problem there? Stephen's also implying that Jesus fulfilled the law through his perfect life and sacrificial death, which did what? It took their righteousness out of their own hands. So let's pan back a little bit. The Israelites rejoiced in the work of their own hands when they made the golden calf. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. By forming a golden calf, the Israelites had a God of their own making. A God that they could control. And by putting their confidence in the temple, Stephen's accusers were doing the same thing. They were not rejoicing in the God of the temple. They were rejoicing in the temple of God. There is a big difference. They looked at their devotion to God and they rejoiced in the works of their hands. Friends, with Jesus, you can't rejoice in the works of your hands. They couldn't rejoice. They couldn't point and say, look what I've done. With Jesus, you can't control God with your good works. Obligate God to bless you because you've done this, all of these wonderful things. Look at what I've done. With Jesus, you can't impress God with your religious commitment. All you can do is put your life in his hands and trust him. And you know what? That's hard. It was hard for them because they didn't understand the depth of their need. And because they didn't understand the depth of their need, they didn't see Jesus as anyone who could really help them. They didn't see themselves as in need of grace. They didn't see themselves like all the Gentiles that they so deeply despised. Sinners who need grace. I think they're okay with talking about sinners and grace, but just not them. Well, Friends, we're all tempted to want a God who is small enough to impress with our own devotion. We want a God that we can fit nicely into our lives. A God that we can craft and worship him on Sundays and be devoted to him at different times and then put him back on the shelf 
We want a God who comforts us and tells us that we're loved, but who wouldn't dare encroach on our time, our comfort, our priorities, our safety. I just want to say that that's not God. That's a therapist. And as long as our vision of God is small and is confined to the temple and is something that we, we can, who's someone we can impress, we will never follow that God where he leads. We will never follow Jesus where he leads because he's on a different path. He comes and he says, you can trust me. I am worthy of everything you have. I'm not going to beat you up for not trusting me, which makes me want to, when you start to believe that, you're going to trust me more. You can come to me. But friends, um, that is something that has to be contended for. You have to fight for that. The most alien thing about Christianity, the hardest thing to believe, is the grace of God. What do you do when you don't knock it out of the park with your faithfulness? What do you do when you sin? Do you immediately rejoice in God's faithful love towards you? Or do you do a little bit of penance? Do you take some days to just kind of beat yourself up, kind of distance yourself, live in shame, mope around, as if God is asking you to just whip yourself And when you're finally done with that, then you can come back in. See, that's the way we treat people who sin against us. Like, I'm going to make you cool off for a little bit, cool your heels for a little bit. And because that's the way we treat people, we think that God's that way. That's not how God is. God is different. God's heart for sinners is not something that just existed back when you became a Christian. It is something that exists this very moment. Friends, his favor towards you is flowing. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is love. It is flowing out of the eternal fountain of God and who he is and into, onto, through God's children. That is who he is. That is for you. That is your blessing. That is your reward. And it is right now. Holy Spirit lives within you, dwells within you. You are the temple of God. And he paid a good price for it with his blood. If you ever doubt that his love for you is effective right this very moment, look at what he went through to get it. He didn't lay his life down so that he could accept you, get you into heaven, and then just let you on your own. No, he raised from the dead and then Acts chapter 2 sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with you so that you can now begin to understand the person, the power, the love, the grace, the presence of God himself. And friends, the more we understand his viewpoint towards us, the more we start our days out like that, the the deeper we're going to go with that.
But we've got to fight for it. Like the thing you've got to be known for fighting for is God's grace in your own life for actually believing that and not falling back into uh, a, a, a legalistic mode of thinking or a performance-driven mode of thinking. The thing you have to fight for is insisting, no, he loves me. I'm going to start. That's my starting point is his love, his faithfulness. That's true to his character. That's true to Scripture, friends. And friends, I also want to say this. Um, Christians are known for contending for things. Um, And in a world where there's a lot to contend about, what ends up happening is the grace of God the, the very center, the, the driving force of the gospel, like the, the heartbeat of God. Love the gospel. It is buried underneath layers of things that we contend about. And it's lost among us, between us, but also to a watching world. Like the biggest threat to Christianity is not any culture war issue, friends. It is a church that has forgotten the goodness of God's grace. Because when you do that, friends, when, we're, when, we, when we say God's grace is overwhelmingly uh, for you, we welcome you. When we say that, when we, when, when we just assume that and sort of stop being amazed by it, man, we lose our power. We lose our uniqueness. Ultimately, what we're saying is, yeah, come and say a prayer, and you'll go to heaven, and then you need to be like us. No, no, no. Come and join a family of rebels who have been redeemed by the king of the universe, and come and be like him. That is what is on offer. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, that is what on offer, what's on offer. It, it's beauty is what on, what's on offer, not a, a moral improvement program but someone who can capture your heart and who you can follow, who you can give your life to because he is worthy. You, you, but you got to start in this place. Like we've got to contend for that message. What, what, can, what is Christianity known for in our culture? Is it the grace of God? Is it the freedom that God brings to those who are enslaved by their sin? Is that what the world hears? I'm afraid not. Let that not be because of us. Finally, we must follow Jesus into circumstances that require us to see him clearly. So for Stephen, following Jesus where he leads meant suffering the wrath of a lynch mob. Um, Verse 54 Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and and they ground their teeth at him. And then, verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And we may not be stoned to death, but contending for grace will draw fire from many directions. It will take you into places that don't like very well the message of God's free grace towards sinners. And it's going to make unexpected friends and unexpected enemies. 
I want you to know that wherever Jesus leads us, there's no guarantee whatsoever as to the outcome. The only guarantee is that he is going to be there with us. The secret sauce, and we'll end with a few points here. The secret sauce of Stephen of the early church. I, I want you to imagine there's a, a, that none of this has happened yet, and Jesus shows up in your life, and he's a part of our lives, and we're like walking around uh, this dude. He's doing all these miracles. And then one day, like, you, he's like, oh, he's going to bring the kingdom of heaven right now. And, and then he's like, actually starts marching and doing things like overturning tables and getting himself in trouble uh, and marching straight towards execution on the cross. And you're like, what just happened? And you see it in the disciples after he's gone. They're sad. What are we going to do? And then one day, he's alive. He's alive. It, it, imagine the impact that would have on this little community. This person that we would walk so close to, he's like, no, I, I saw him. He's alive. Mary, Mary saw him. That would take following Jesus wherever he leads out of the theoretical and make it very, very real. Their secret sauce was they believed in the resurrection. They, they, the Jesus that they followed when they said, I'm following Jesus, was alive. And friends, when you've been around Christianity for a long, long time, in the church for a long, long time, the Jesus that you know is alive can easily just sort of fit in and can become ordinary. Jesus was too big to them to be ordinary. And Jesus is too big to be anything but a center of gravity around which all things revolve. The majesty, the glory of his person. So we see here, that we need, if we're going to follow him, we need a vision of his glory, his authority, and his approval. What does it say? Verse 55 and 56. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But imagine if you're Stephen going through this and he gets this vision. He gets this vision of this king the, look at the grace of God to meet him in his greatest time of need to say, I'm here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn up. I'm going to turn up the, the volume on your vision of me so that you can get through this. Friends, if you're going to make it through hard things, you can't have a small Jesus. People say that theology is not important. And well, let me tell you something. Your view of God, like... Like, it, your joy is, is dependent on your view of God. And if God is not beautiful and glorious to you, then you will not have a life of joy. And the hardness of life, the weeds of a broken world will wear you down. And friends, 
I've experienced that, and I know most of you have experienced that as well. Jesus says, I will sustain you through the biggest difficulties. This is a sales pitch for the gospel. Come die. But the sales pitch is really, I will sustain you. Is our picture of Jesus big enough, glorious enough? That word glory means weight, means beauty. And, and, and is he so big that our affections, in, in, at a very gut level, like he fills our hearts and says, I want to be around that. I, I see that and I'm in awe of it. Like when you go to the Grand Canyon, you see that and you're like, you're not like, oh, well, that's cool. No, it's massive. When you look at the universe, you're like, oh, cool, a bunch of stars. No, understanding the true size of it is mind-blowing. And when you get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, your heart is not just like, oh, cool, God loves me. No, it is filled with awe and with wonder at God's love. We put him at the center as he is. But we also must have a picture of his authority. Jesus is at the right hand of God, which is the position of authority, which means this is not a mistake. Their secret sauce was that they believed that God was truly in control of the world. And that bad things happen were not because God has it out for me. They were not because God is all of a sudden out of control. They didn't worry about the problem of evil because they knew that God conquered evil, because they knew the beginning from the end, because Jesus was alive. It was the lens through which they understood their suffering and all of the hard things that happened. Jesus is, a, is, is alive. He is in charge. And there are so many hard things that we go through, right? Or we just, we just shrink back because they hurt. They hurt. And Jesus is, is saying, no, you need a vision of me. I'm in charge. And I will be here. And then finally, we need a vision of Jesus as approval. F.F. Bruce says that Stephen has been, he's a commentator, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. And now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Imagine going through this and being surrounded by an, an angry mob and you know it's not going to end well. You're afraid and there's Jesus standing in approval. Not seated as usually described, but you know what? He sees, he knows. Friends, God is honored. God does approve whenever we follow him. It, his love is, is, is never diminished when we don't. But when we start to get a big picture of his glory and his goodness, don't you want to please this God? I, I want to please a God who is so good, who has been so good to me. And it's okay to say, you know what? I want to live a life that pleases God. Well, when Jesus leads us into opposition, we need to remember all of these things. And then we see his heart toward his enemies. We need to see that. 
when people hurt you, like when, when, when following Jesus runs, turns you, have you ever tried to serve in ministry and someone just treated you really poorly? Or is this the most uninspiring thing in the world? Like, I'm never doing that again. Well, and as they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's, remember, who else said that? Jesus. Lord, they know not what they're doing. What a, what a heart. And we need to see, as God's gospel starts to get a hold of us, friends, it's going to start to get a hold of the way we are able to forgive other people. It's going to change the way we see other people. If you have a hard time forgiving someone who's hurt you, that's okay. But know that as you come to understand the depth of God's love and forgiveness towards you, he's going to expand your heart. He's going to help you see that forgiveness, if God forgave you, then you ought to forgive that person. But that can only happen, again, with a vision of Jesus. But we can't walk around bitter for the kingdom of God to follow Jesus, to move forward with him, we must learn, because we're going to hurt each other, right? We're all like inconsistent, at times immature, at times hypocritical, we're going to hurt each other. And we've got to learn the, the, the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And finally, we see his plan for persecution. Verse 1 and I realized I said finally twice and that you thought we were finished, but here we go. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the witnesses, verse 58, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. Listen. You have to understand that the way God moves his kingdom forward is by using the brokenness of people. And that sometimes the hard things that happen as we follow Jesus wherever he leads is, is going to be fruit. And we can't imagine it sometimes in the midst of the pain. It's going to bring fruit. But God has always worked this way. What you meant for evil God meant for good. It's what Joseph says to his brothers. And that's the way he works here. He uses a man named Saul, who was the murderer, dragging people off. He was the one who organized all of this. And this, at the book of Acts, is about to change, and he's about to become the center of the narrative with his conversion and with planting churches all throughout Europe and the Middle East. Praise the Lord. That's how he works. But we have to have a picture of that, that God could be doing something here. So if we want to flourish in the joy and the worship and in purpose and meaning of God's empowering presence, we must reject the safe Jesus and follow him wherever he leads. Safety is found in his presence. So this week, I want you to do one thing. Look for an area where you typically don't 
trust that God's love for you is, is real? Or you really struggle to trust that he is faithful? And I want you to just simply ask him, Lord, I want you to just confess to him. Say, Lord, I know I'm not gracious, or I know I'm not pure, or I know I'm not faithful, but you are. And would you help me? Because I am yours. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are yours. And we come to you in that confidence. Lord, help us to believe that, to start with that. Lord, help us to contend with that. And Lord, give us a vision, a vision of your glory. May we pursue that vision. And Lord, begin, continue that work in our hearts and our lives right now as we worship, as we take your, as we meet with you in the Lord's Supper. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.